Ellen. And I'm Sam. And we're just here to cause chaos. Yeah. Ellen, did I tell you about my wave endeavor this weekend? No, what's your wave endeavor? What were you doing? So I went to the beach this weekend because I live in San Diego now, and that's one of like three activities people do here all the time. Meanwhile, it's getting cold up here. Or <laughs> scared. I can go to the beach whenever I want. <sighs> so I went to the beach this weekend and I went with my friend. And so we like found this cute little cove that no one else was in. And it was really exciting because like prime beach territory, we didn't really see a downside. So we like laid our towels out, we like, laid down, put our feet in the ocean for a little bit, like got out our books. And the surfer guy comes by and is like, hey, the tide's rising, like, be careful. And we were like, oh, it's okay. And he was like, you probably have like an hour or two. And so we were like, great. We got an hour or two left in our great spot. Um, And about maybe an hour or so later, this big ass wave comes and just like washes us. And I lost my shoes. I lost my water bottle. I lost my scrunchie. My friend lost her shorts and her shoes. Everything was waterlogged. I ended up having to like walk back into my apartment barefoot, like clutching a drenched towel in my bikini (laughs) to then find my roommate and her friend sitting on the couch. It's almost like the cove was abandoned for a reason. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that's why I have to buy new shoes now. I only had two pairs of shoes and now I only have one. So that's that's my story. You poor broke college student. You know what? I could I like ordered a second pair of shoes online and it wasn't really like it, it wasn't that I couldn't have another pair of shoes. It's that I didn't need another pair of shoes. So now I need another pair of shoes. Well, you could be a corporate sellout like me and buy all the shoes. I could have more <laughs> shoes. <laughs> like I have a job. <laughs> it was literally just a lack of desire to buy more shoes. Fine. Uh, but I also had to get a new water bottle. So I like went to Target and hemmed and hawed over water bottles and turned out I accidentally bought the same one that my sister already had. <laughs> and I had to get new scrunchies. It was a whole endeavor. <laughs> I guess great minds think alike. Yeah. Also, when I say I lost my shoes, I lost one shoe. Oh, that's even worse. Right? I don't know what to do with the second one. Uh, donate it to one of those charities that give shoes to amputees. Is that a thing? I think so. <laughs> they ha- I heard they have, like, meetups uh, where they have, like, buddies called soulmates. Like, shoe soul. That's pretty bad. I know. <laughs> oh, that's my story. I just, I felt the need to tell you it. I needed to know this. So, oh, other exciting news in my life, because I'm just full of updates. I have a niece. Yay! My sister gave birth yesterday. Um, This baby is squishy and tiny and has really good cheeks. And I can't wait to squish them. And so this episode's in honor of her. I already love her. I already love her so much. Already excited. I'm going to meet her on Friday. Baby. So, the subject of today's episode is Heloise de Argentoul. Um, 
I don't think I said that right. It's very French. And this is in honor of my new niece, Eloise. This is the very first mention of the name in history. So, <laughs> yeah. Eloise was born around 1098 BCE. Some historians say as early as 1090, but you know, this is the 1000, this is like not even a century that we give like a name to. <laughs> so, you know, they don't really have a lot of records. And yeah, because of this, we don't know her original last name or who her parents were. Um, all we know is that her mother's name was most likely Hersinde, um, and some believe that she was a nun from a convent at St. Eloy, which was where the name Eloise would have come from, or she was possibly the uh, Hersinde of Champagne, who was the Lady of Montsoru and the founder of the Fontevrad Abbey. There's also a theory that her father was Gilbert Garland, who was a high noble and served as the patron of her soon-to-be husband later in life. However, I will disprove that theory in like a minute. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. So I'm going in this completely cold. I have no idea who this woman is, what Wasn't she did. Wasn't the point for me to tell you that? I know, but usually I have like a baseline knowledge. This is, this is disconcerting. Well, then you better listen carefully. <laughs> This will be worse than the Annie Oakley episode. Actually, no, this will be better because the, that one I had misconceptions, which was <laughs> less good. Yeah, you know, I agree. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, she's also sometimes called Heloise du Paraclet. Um, Argent Tool and Paraclet are both abbeys that she's associated with at various times in her life, not less names. That's why it's like or do of these places because it's like she's Heloise of these various abbeys because um, we don't know her last name all right fair enough and she was a renowned woman of words and philosopher of love and friendship is kind of like her title oh this is gonna be good yeah I hope you're excited she is also the star of what is considered by most historians as the best known love tragedy of history What's the best known love tragedy of history? I'm gonna tell you, that's the entire episode. Ooh. But yeah, so you know, Eloise has a really great namesake here. <laughs> it was a fun story. Strong women make strong women. Exactly. So yes, we will start with Eloise's early life. She was educated at the convent of Argentoul uh, until she was an adolescent, at which point she was sent to Paris. But while she was in her adolescence and um, being educated at this abbey, she was known for her skill in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and very quickly developed a reputation as intelligent and insightful. During this time, she also began writing poems, hymns, and plays, and she kept writing for her entire life. A lot of her work has been lost, but also like a good amount of it's still around, like way more than Sappho's, so that's exciting. And she's also savage. Like, I'm going to quote some of her writing later, and I hope you're excited. <laughs> it's not hard to have more work survive than Sappho's. We have, like, one poem and three lines from her. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> All um, she would have had to do is have, like, a solid page, and she would have more. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. 
You're so dismayed that I reminded you of this. Yeah, no, um, my face just like physically fell at the reminder of how little of Sappho's work we still have. But the only member of Heloise's family that we have like confirmed is her maternal uncle, a guy named Fulbert, who was a canon of Notre Dame. And for those of you who, like me, are not steeped in the Catholic Church, um, a canon is a kind of clergyman who lives in the community of the church. I think it's just a priest, but like a fancy word for priest, but also that's what I got from Wikipedia. So if that's not what it is, please don't fight me and just tell me nicely. Catholics, man. They make everything so complicated. There's a lot of Catholic terminology I had to learn for this story, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I don't think I properly learned any of it. <laughs> I had to learn a lot of, like, Brooklyn-specific knowledge for the Shirley Chrisom episode. <laughs> like, I had to watch a video about the neighborhood of bed because I had never heard of it, and I didn't know it was called that. I had to learn a bunch of weird terms for various levels of none for later in the story, and that was fun. There's more than one level of none? Yes. There's oh, like seven. That's too many. Or at least seven that I had to find out about. There might be more. I don't know. Please don't fight me, Catholics. <laughs> for some reason, though, Uncle Ful Fulbert had a guardianship over his niece. That reason is unknown because her parents are unknown. But he had her brought to Notre Dame in her late teens, um, most sources said between the age of 15 and 17. And once she was in Notre Dame, she couldn't go to the university there, even though she was incredibly smart, but her uncle wanted her to continue her education. Um, also, she can't go to the university because she was a woman, if that wasn't obvious, based on like the fact that this is 10, like 11, 15 BCE. No, no I, I got that. Cool. Her education was entrusted to a man named Peter Abelard around 1115. So remember, this is when she's about 15 or 17, like somewhere in that range. Um, but she was brilliant and bright. And at the time, Peter Abelard was a log log logician. Log logician. I can't say that word. Whole. Mm. I think it's logician. I think you got it right the first time. Really? Yeah. Okay, he was a logician and theologian. We're just gonna let that sit. Um, the worst okay. part is you said Notre Dame and Catholic and Catholics, and now I'm just thinking about the Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's super unhelpful. I know. <laughs> Very aware of that. <laughs> I too wish I wasn't thinking of this. I, I actually have never seen the Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's a good movie. There's a creepy song where the old man lusts over a much younger woman. Yeah, sounds about right. But yeah, Peter was a lesser noble who rejected a knighthood to become a philosopher. And this is where I'm going to disprove that her parents were those two noble people who I listed before, because Heloise wrote in some of her later letters that she was a, of a lower social standing than Peter which disproves the theory that her mother could have been a lady and her father could have been Gilbert, who was like a high noble. Um, also, I found out this theory is further complicated by the fact that her Sunday of Champagne would have been somewhere between 35 and 50 when Heloise was born, 
of course that age range is because we don't know when anyone was born um but if she was closer to 50 she couldn't have been having kids yeah that that especially in that time period yeah they didn't have that much fertility treatment no and they had much fewer twins i know (laughs) (laughs) so peter was the leading philosopher in all of western europe which is a pretty big coup for your private tutor in my opinion (laughs) Um, he agreed to teach her in exchange for free lodging at Notre Dame. <laughs> we'll teach for housing. Yep, that was the vibe. Hey, that's what you do. You know what? You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, I think Uncle Fulbert is going to grow to regret the decision to let this guy live with him in exchange for teaching his niece because Heloise fell in love with Peter. God damn it, Heloise. Yep. And for context, Peter was born somewhere around 1079. Again, we don't know when anyone was born. So he was probably about like 19 or 20 years older than her. Eloise, do better. You're (laughs) supposed to be smart. Yeah, but this was intrigue and scandal. (laughs) It is hard to resist intrigue and scandal. I know, right? (laughs) Eloise and Peter began sleeping together in secret. Until she got pregnant, of course. Oh. I was reading an article about this couple and came across a very concerning headline that I'm just going to address right now and then move on from, um, which was Heloise, Peter, and sexual consent. So most historians believe that this was a loving, consensual relationship. However, in some of his later writings, Peter had a very um disturbing quote that makes people kind of wonder about the nature of their initial relationship so i'm just gonna read it real quick and then i'm gonna read some reasoning behind it and then we're gonna move on Um, so the quote is when you objected to sex yourself and resisted with all your might and tried to dissuade me from it i frequently forced your consent by threats and blows Which, like, sounds real bad. That was so much worse than what I thought you were going to say. It was so much worse than what I expected, because I read, because, like, this section came at the end, so I was already, like, knee-deep in, like, shipping them. (laughs) However, I'm gonna disprove this quote a little bit, because it directly opposes Heloise's own writing. She consistently talked of how much she enjoyed their sexual encounters and also about how she chose Peter over the thousands of men in Notre Dame who were interested in her. And like, she wrote multiple letters after that quote came out being like, no, he's like, he's wrong, he's lying. But what a weird thing to lie about though. Yeah, so most historians think that Peter wrote this in order to take all the moral burden for their affair and Um, away from her and like protect her from some of the like worst parts of being a woman who got pregnant outside of wedlock in that time period this is like things that will come up later in their story but if it had been a consensual relationship then Heloise would have been considered a fallen woman which would have threatened Peter's property because he would have been in association with a fallen woman, which is a sexual scandal, kind of. And the Catholic Church at the time was in practice of seizing people's lands for such allegations. Sorry, that's some handmaid's tale nonsense right there. 
oh, it, it's real bad. Um, so most historians were like, no, he was probably lying to protect both her reputation and his land. And I'm just like, how is it being unconsensual better? Sexism. That's usually the answer in these cases. Yeah. So we're just going to we're going to leave that there and continue on with the story. Um, so at the point we left off at for me to go on that horrible tangent that I did not enjoy um, was they were sleeping together and she got pregnant in secret. Yes, there's a mini so, Eloise. Yes. When she got pregnant, she went to Brittany um, to give birth to Peter's son. She went to Brittany because that's where Peter's sister's De sister Denise lived. And so she went there to make sure that both her uncle Ful Fulbert didn't find out about it. And so she had like a safe place where she could like give birth and all that. And she named their son Astrolabe, like the navigational device. So that's just like fun. She's the original white woman namer. Yeah. <laughs> um, Astrolabe was not raised by Heloise whatsoever. He <laughs> was raised by Denise and Brittany in Peter's childhood home. Um, and it doesn't really say that he like really corresponded with his mom at all. However, there are like a book of poems that Peter wrote for him over like his lifetime. So that's kind of nice. But when she got back to Paris after giving birth, they got married in secret. Ooh. Yeah, they did this to peace to appease Uncle Fulbert, who found out about the baby and was real pissed. <laughs> I can imagine. But they made sure the marriage stayed a secret from like the public because this was around the time the Catholic Church started to forbid clergymen from marrying and Peter's career was kind of on the line. God. I know the real enemy of the story would be the Catholic Church. Like, I should yeah. have expected that. <laughs> yeah. Also, side note, here's how I'm imagining the uncle finding out going down. It's like, where have you been for the past nine months? And then Eloise is like, nowhere. It's like, and what's that behind your back? Nothing. And then there's just a crying baby. <laughs> you know, probably not wrong. <laughs> Yeah, but in reality, Heloise did not want to get married. She only agreed to appease her uncle, but like she had some strong viewpoints on marriage. I mean, especially at that time, it was definitely a tool used to oppress women. Yeah, um, but overall, Uncle Fulbert was pissed and like not appeased. He believed that his niece had been ruined. And he, once they got married, he immediately started telling everyone about their secret marriage even though he promised he wouldn't. That's a jerk move right there. Right? <laughs> and then when Heloise started denying that she was married when people would ask her in public, he would abuse her for lying. Oh my God. And so eventually Peter rescued her from his house by sending her to the convent where she grew up in Argentul. And this only like further enraged uncle fulbert he thought that peter was trying to get rid of her since he was like done with her or whatever and he also was like upset he didn't have control and so mm -hmm. uncle fulbert had peter attacked and castrated i'm sorry he did what now he got a group of men to go to peter's room in the night and castrate him oh my god yeah he's like one baby was too many and Uncle Fulbert's punishment for having a, another man 
castrated was that he had to take a leave of absence from the church canon ship that he had for a few years but like he shows up again like maybe five years later in the church records so like you know that was his punishment his punishment was suspension yeah he kidnapped a man <laughs> he didn't kidnap him he castrated him in his own room um that that's my fun fact right there that wasn't fun i know few of these facts have been fun i know so yeah after peter was attacked and castrated he went to the monastery of saint dennis and became a monk i guess he's already halfway there yeah and heloise since she was already at a uh abbey or nunnery um just took the veil of a nun which was pretty much her only option at this point more or less because she was a woman of this time period and her husband had become a monk. She would have either had to go back to her uncle's house, which like seems like a hard no to me, um, moved to rural Brittany with Peter's family, which like probably wouldn't have been that bad and like her son was there, but that's not what she chose to do. Or divorced from Peter and remarried, but most likely any other man she would have been able to marry would have been not learned because she had like this reputation now probably would have been some influence from her uncle yeah. if she got another husband so she became a nun which honestly was probably her best best option at that point so are she and is she still like legally married yes okay they stay legally married because there's like really nothing they can do about that this is 10 this is the 1100s um that's true i'm just thinking like Aren't nuns supposed to be, like, married to God? Yeah, so now he's a monk and she's a nun, so, like, I, I think they're, like, both kind of married to God now, but... It's a thruple. This all makes sense now. Yeah, they're in a thruple with God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but Heloise and Peter, like, pretty much stay in love, and they write letters throughout, like, the rest of their lives. That's adorable. Seven of these letters are super famous and have been around pretty much since their lives, four of which are personal letters. Um, multiple of those personal letters entail Heloise berating Peter for the fact that she didn't hear from him for a couple of years after uh, the attack. Oh. She is like, dude, we are married. You can't have just like shut me out for a few years like i get that this was really traumatic for you but we are married <laughs> it's like what do you have to say for yourself so honestly props to her for calling him out on that and then the other three letters are letters of direction which are like religious texts they talk about like what it means to be a nun like all of this like religiousy stuff that I, I didn't really care about. But the letters of direction start after Heloise promises to stop talking about how much Peter hurt her by ignoring her for years. Cause he <gasps> pretty much wrote a letter being like, I'm gonna stop writing you if you keep complaining about this. And she was like, fine, I'll stop. Oh, <laughs> Which like is so sad. God, that, that's so... It's like, stop telling me about your emotional trauma. God. Get to the God stuff. Yeah. I I'm really like on the fence about whether or not I stand Peter. 
Not gonna lie. We'll, we'll wait till the end to decide whether we put them on the side of stannable or unstannable husbands. Yeah. But there are 113 more letters that are believed to have been written by Peter and Heloise uh, that were found around the 1970s. And historians believe that they belong to the couple because of like similar writing styles and the time period they're dated to, but they were all written as anonymous. So like, we don't actually know that it was them, but it's a series of love letters that were from the time right before the attack on Peter when they were like, still going at it. <laughs> so yeah, no, they're really nice letters. Actually, they're cute. Actually, yeah, that would uh, it would make sense if they were anonymous at that point because yeah. you know, they were still in secret. But their surviving letters are considered the foundation of French and European literature. So um, the, I had to learn a lot about various genres of book for this ne next little bit I'm going to tell you about. <laughs> so their letters are the foundation of the idea of courtly love, which is a literature genre that focuses on the noble and chivalrous nature of love. The sometimes erotically charged letters are also the Latin basis for the Bilgenstroman genre. Don't ask me to say that again, um, which is focused on the moral growth of a protagonist from childhood to adulthood. That's, I think that's where it's like Bundle Rosen. I believe you. I okay. don't think I said it right. Cool. It's B-I-L-D-U-N-G-S-R-O-M-A-N. That was too many letters for me to figure out. It was very German. I know I learned th about this in English class. <sighs> the letters are also considered a classic of the epistolary genre. The letter writing genre. Yes. Why do you know so much more about book genres than I do? I read a lot of books. True. But yes, it is a story told through a series of documents is the definition I found. So the letter writing genre is correct. <laughs> and yeah, no, but they they were like still were in love. They still talked. Um, and when her convent got disbanded for allegations of sexual misconduct, Peter gave the nun some land that he was the property of the community but he'd been allowed to found a parish on and so the parish was called Le Paraclet which is where Eloise de Paraclet comes from her second name and she pretty much turned this land that he gave her into a nun community where she became the abbess of Le Paraclet which is like the head nun of a nunnery convent area um and in 1147, she became the prelate nules of her church, which is the female equivalent of a bishop power-wise. This is getting too technical. All I know about nuns is that one Whoopi Goldberg movie. <laughs> and I only know about that because that was my sister's play one year. All you need to really remember from this is that she had the same amount of power in the Catholic church as a bishop at one point. Oh, wow. That's a lot of power. Yeah, no. She was a big deal in the Catholic Church. So are we just gonna gloss over the sexual misconduct of the nuns? I don't have any details on it. Okay. <laughs> I looked at it. It just said sexual misconduct. <laughs> also, side note. So another thing in high school was we learned about Don Quixote. And basically, Don Quixote had, had like a parody of the courtly love 
in that he had like a girlfriend and by that they mean there was a girl and he thought about her a lot so it's interesting to like see the very beginning of where that comes from and when it was actually unironic <laughs> yeah no this was like the start of courtly love Eloise had the first tragic romance in history, so. So romantic. So romantic. But she also innovated the field of nunning. I did not know how to say that any better than that. What? What could that possibly mean? So she developed a new approach for women's religious management and female scholarship. So like as pretty much the first female scholar of like the medieval times, she wrote the book on how to do that and how to do that from like a religious perspective. She also rewrote the rules of her convent to be run specifically in, uh, with rules specifically interpreted for women's needs. That's great. Yeah, no, she she did some. She's like a lot of feminists claim that Heloise is like one of the like his uh, philosophers that kind of started the movement like way back in history. Like they kind of put her on the same level as Sappho a lot of times. Oh wow as like philosopher, writer, person from way back when before feminism was a thing. <laughs> and during her time as a nun, she got hella educated, like aggressively educated. Yes, get that education, girl. She became a well-known and very respected writer and philosopher. And she mostly wrote about the idea of pure friendship and unselfish love. She also was one of the very first people to claim that intent was critical when determining the moral correctness of sin. Mm -hmm. And so she often wrote about her own love affair being innocent and pure, but having been treated as guilty and causing a punishment, aka Peter's attack and castration. And she famously refused to repent for the sin of like premarital sex because she believed that she was only punished after she had repented for the sin by getting married and therefore did not have to repent for full further and actually was owed like a debt by like the religious community for having been punished for a sin after she'd already repented. And she also insisted that since she only had good intentions when she started the affair, it wasn't a sin. I don't know about that. <laughs> There's a whole saying about, you know, the road to hell being paved with good intentions. You know what? I like this idea that, like, the intention is important. I feel like you don't see that a lot in Catholicism, so I dig it. Intent does matter. And in this case, th we're talking about an affair, so it's not like they were doing some for the greater good nonsense. So I'll give it to her, but still. The ends don't always justify the need, the means. I don't know. Is it intent like four-fifths of the law or something like that? But even though she refused to repent for the sin of their love, Peter claimed that their love had been based on lust and that it was definitely in sin, and later in their writings encouraged her to turn her attention to Jesus instead. You know, he's just trying to keep his throuple on a strong basis. Yeah. He said a lot of stuff like this, and she adamantly insisted that like he still loved her like he, she would write response letters to when he said crap like that and be like no he definitely still loves me we're definitely <laughs> still in love like he is just trying to appease some people but like he loves me 
God, Peter really changed after he went through this trauma. He really changed after this trauma. But she also <laughs> wrote multiple times that she did not believe that his love was weak enough that it was like taken away by this trauma. <laughs> she was not letting him get away with anything. No. And she was also a huge influence on Peter, who was also a philosopher and writer. But because he was a man, he had a much wider audience. But a lot of his writing is considered to have been like very influenced by her and her beliefs. And we're going to get into her fun opinions on marriage right now. Oh, heck yeah. Hit me. So she called marriage contractual prostitution. Oh, she's not wrong. I mean, she's not, especially in that time period. No, the time period was terrible. She constantly was like drawing a clear line differentiating marriage from the pure love and friendship that she shared with Peter and often said that she preferred love to wedlock and freedom to a bond. Um, she once even wrote that she preferred the honesty of sex work to the hypocrisy of marriage. Oh my God. <laughs> um, she was also critical of childbearing and childcare which, you know, is kind of funny because she had a kid and did not take care of it. Well, she stuck by her principles. She claimed that parenthood and scholarship were near impossible to coexist and had a really fun quote that's going to come up in the quote wall about how, like, you can't pretty much have diapers and, like, pens and quills in the same household. Alright, well, like, there's that, but, like, we never ask men to choose between, like, there's studies or having a family i agree i think you should be able to do both but she was literally saying like you can't do both you got she she was like very much saying i want to be a scholar so i can't be a parent <laughs> but she was considered a forerunner of contemporary feminist scholars um she was one of the first female scholars ever uh, she was the first recorded female medieval scholar and she was one of the first medieval scholars to discuss marriage, childbearing, and sex work in a critical and non-judgmental light. I can imagine, because I'm sure that the rest of the scholars were just like, no. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and in around 1132, we don't have any confirmed dates for anything, but around 1132, Peter wrote an autobiographical piece called Historia Calamitatum, which detailed his love story with Heloise. And in it, though he made a lot of claims that were trying to like take all the moral blame for the situation, which was partially because of like his religious feelings and partially for like her reputation, but she was having none of it. So he claimed that he premeditatively seduced Heloise and Heloise wrote a letter in reply to this where she was like, no. She pretty much was like, I was just as into it from the very beginning. I chose him over all the other guys who were after me. And uh, she even was like, I'm pretty sure I came on to him. <laughs> and then she like even called him out. She was like, you're just trying to justify your punishment. So you don't like have to have an issue with God. And you're trying to spare my reputation, but like, stop it, bro. I love how she spent this entire time being like, I am free from sin, our love is pure. And then Peter's like, but it was all my fault. Yep, that is exactly what's happening in these letters, and it's 
hilarious. <laughs> uh, medieval shade. Yeah, no. He was trying to, like, spare her reputation and all that, and Heloise was like, I am going down with this ship. <laughs> he also spent a lot of his autobiographical book praising her intelligence, but at one point he said that she was, more, more or less, I'm going to, like, paraphrase this in my own words, but he was like, she is super intelligent and passably pretty. <laughs> he really focuses on what? That's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really funny. Um, he focuses on her brain and like really actively tries not to write her as a sex object. In <laughs> um, this quote, are you ready for this quote? Oh, I'm sure I'm not, but please. She is not bad in the face, but her copious writings are second to none. <laughs> Honestly, I'm leaning towards Stanable Husband. I think I am too. Like, the whole, like, give up on me and go hang out Jesus thing wasn't great, but other than that, I'm, like, really here for him. Yeah, especially if you compare him to Mary Wollstonecraft's husband, True. who had no concept of, like, gender roles and how women are perceived in society, and proceeded to write what he thought was a lovely, well-written biography of his wife, only to find out that he just destroyed her legacy. Yeah, true. He didn't do that, so we can all respect him for that. Bars on the floor, but he yep. he crossed it. <laughs> you know, he the bar was on the floor, but at least he didn't dig a hole under it, <laughs> like some men have. <laughs> but in the end, Heloise was buried beside Peter at Le Perlet, the like nun community where they both lived, and he was older, so he went first. So she was just like buried next to him. And she died on May 15th, 1164. That is a date we actually know, which is exciting in this story. Yeah, I'm blown away. We haven't known any dates at all. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say around some random year, so that was pretty exciting for me. <laughs> but both Heloise and Peter's remains were, mo were removed from Le Periclet and taken to Pierre Lachaise Cemetery in Paris in the 19th century. And this is now a popular site for like young lovers to go and like leave little things by the grave and whatnot and be like in honor of our love is, is in honor of their love and whatever, all that kind of stuff, you know? That's very romantic, but like you can't walk two steps in France without running over some romantic, like... <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> Um, also, I need to stop picking French things because, like, I think this is the language I can pronounce the least, and I struggle so hard, and I keep doing French people. And your German's not great either. My German might be better, though. <laughs> My Russian was fine. I don't know. I need to stop doing French. Okay, but yeah. Um, their love story has been, being, has been adapted to plays and books from all over like there were so many plays and books that i did not decide i decided not to list them because I, there were a lot of them the first one was as early as 1337 is the first recorded play about their love story there was plays about them from the romantic period there's play about them from the early modern period um there are plays about them from the medieval period like there is a lot of people who have adapted their love story into things their love spans all the genres yeah, I mean, they pretty much inspired like three separate genres, so good for them. Mm -hmm. And 
Heloise was a central figure in the establishment of women's representation and scholarship. She was known for her controversial portrayals of gender and marriage and ended up being a big influence on modern day feminism. And you know what? My niece has a really great namesake, so I'm pretty happy. <laughs> she does. Yeah. And even though this is a very old time period and usually something from this far back, I wouldn't have a quote wall for. She was a writer, so I've got a quote wall. And I'm excited. Are you? I don't think you're excited enough for this quote wall, Ellen. I'm building up the hype within me. Just you wait. <laughs> First, for it is not the deed itself, but the intention of the doer that makes the sin. Equity weighs not what is done, but the spirit in which it is done. Philosophical. I like that I one. Like it. It's the least fun of her quotes, but I liked it, so I kept it. Now, this one's good. Are you ready? What? The spicy stuff. Yeah. No woman seeking a spouse should think of herself less for sale if she prefers a rich man to a poor man in marriage. She Oof. wants what she would get. More than the husband itself, reward such greed with cash and not devotion, for she is after property alone and is prepared to sell herself to an even richer man if given the chance. <laughs> That's some female dating strategy stuff right there. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, this one's good too. If the name of wife appears more sacred and more valid, sweeter to me is ever the word friend, or if you would permit concubine or whore. <laughs> I call God to witness. If Augustus ruling over the whole world were to deem me worthy of the honor of marriage and to confirm the whole world to me, to be ruled by me forever, Dearer to me and of greater dignity would it seem to be called thy concubine than his empress. Ooh. Wow, you told me she didn't like the institution of marriage, and yet I was not prepared. Also, she used the word scortum for whore, which actually in the medieval slang was the term for male prostitute or rent boy, which is just like fun. That's even better. Yeah. For not with me was my heart, but with thee. For now, more than ever, if it be not with thee, it is nowhere. For without thee, it cannot anywhere exist. That's so romantic. I know. She wrote that to Peter after they had like been separated for a long time, amongst those letters where she was just calling him out for deserting her. No one's real worth is measured by his property or power. Fortune belongs to one category of things, in virtue to another. I tried to dissuade thee from our marriage, from an ill-starred bed. I preferred love to wedlock, freedom to change. Chains, not change, sorry. So yeah, I like that this woman literally was like living in the 1100s and was like, you know what? I really don't want to marry you. You might've knocked me up <laughs> and my uncle might be pissed, but I don't feel like getting married. <laughs> I've seen what happens to women who get married. Not worth it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then last but not least, what woman could endure babies? <laughs> well, apparently your sister. <laughs> yeah, my sister can endure babies. <laughs> I FaceTimed the baby and her cheeks are so squishy 
and I just want to cuddle her and I have to wait till Friday to cuddle her and I'm so mad about it. Is is the baby very small? Is it a small very baby? Small. <gasps> it was eight pounds. <gasps> That's a little baby. Which I don't think my sister would say it was small, but I think it's a little. Oh. I don't think my sister after 16 hours of labor would say eight pounds is small, but I think it's very small. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to a, you know, grown human, that's a small, that's a small human. Yeah, that's true. So, Ellen, what are you going to destroy my mood with? Well, wait, wait, I decided to do something a little more positive this week. Oh, really? Yeah. So, you know how Eloise had essentially her own abbey? Yes? Yes. Well, imagine something like that, but in Kenya. Okay. Okay, so in Kenya, there is a village called Emoja. And Emoja is an all-female matriarch village. And it's like about 240 miles from the capital of Kenya, which is Nairobi. And essentially, this was founded by Rebecca Lolosoli, and she's part of the Samburu ethnic group. Oh, is this that village where all the women took all the children away from the village, like from some other village, and they founded their own, and then they like raised them, and all these men grew up like not sexist and horrible? It might be. Okay. Sounds about right. (laughs) So, basically... Some of the history behind this was a lot of women had been uh, raped and then they were just like cast out of their village for being, you know, quote unquote, unclean or whatever. And they're like, well, what do we do now? And Rebecca's like, we're going to found our own village. And then she did. Basically, they started off really small. It was just a few of them. And the men were like, hey, are they allowed to have their own village? And then they're like, I guess we should do something about this. So meanwhile, the men set up like, the women are doing their craft business and creating like a small tourism industry. And the men are setting up a basically just a rival craft business next door. And they're trying to, like, get tourists to stop going to Emoja. And (laughs) they are not having it. Like, no one is is at all interested in these sexist men. (laughs) Like, you want us to not go to the feminist icon's house? And so the women basically start getting more established. The Kenya Wildlife Services notice and they help improve Emoja's business. And uh, then eventually this place becomes so well known that through the grapevine, other women are hearing about it and it becomes a place of refuge for just uh, women who are being forced to marry much older men One of the stories is about a 13-year-old girl who comes to the village 
and is talking to Rebecca, and she's like, they want me to marry a man three times my age. And oh. the fun plot twist is that the man she was supposed to marry was Rebecca's own brother. Oh. I know. Intrigue. Yes. And Rebecca's like, you do not have to marry him. You will not marry him. Welcome home. Go, Rebecca. I stand Rebecca. Rebecca is going to get her own episode at some point, but this is a little teaser. Another big thing is that, unfortunately, in Kenya, there are large instances of FGM, or female genital mutilation, which is sometimes called the circumcision of women. It's a brutal practice, absolutely terrible, and is... Shares very few similarities with male circumcision. This is much more drastic and violent and painful. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that is that this village advocates for, uh, you know, ending that. And that's So when was this village founded? Oh, yeah. This village was founded in like 1990. Oh, so it's like new. Yeah. That's cool. Good for Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Rebecca's still alive. Oh. Still doing good work. Go, Rebecca. You know, in my head, I was like, it's either, like, in the last 30 years or, like, 1850. And I was like, there's no in between in my head. Like, there's no way it was anywhere in between there. It's relatively recent. Uh, Rebecca actually visited the UN in 2005 uh, to, like, speak about women's rights in Africa. And one thing is that the women of the village actually own the land, which, yeah, unfortunately in Kenya isn't super common for women to own their own land, but they do. Good for them. And this has also proved hugely influential. Uh, There have been other villages that are set up relatively nearby. They'll have like slightly different attitudes towards uh, whether or not men are allowed to stay. Like, in Amoja, men are not allowed to stay overnight. They're allowed to visit. But only... <laughs> what if oh. it's, like, a child man who grew up there? Is he allowed to stay? I think he's allowed to stay. Okay. Yeah. Because they have... They were raised with the Amoja values. But, like, any other man. No. <laughs> you know what? I stand it. <laughs> There's actually this one great part where they were talking about how the village had become so large and so successful that they had to hire outside men to haul the firewood, which was apparently a designated female job. And they're like, there's too many of us. (laughs) Uh, I like this. (laughs) Can we go visit? Yes, let's do it. I want to get some beads from there. All right, and so there are other villages in the surrounding area that will have different attitudes towards men, and it's like they'll allow men to stay overnight, or they will live with men, but the uh, women are still, like, the leaders of the council. Uh, But it's actually uh, the influence is spread internationally. In Syria, there is a village called Jinwar, which originally Kurdish community 
where they provided solace for oppressed women, uh, especially in light of the Syrian civil war. And this was around 2016, 2017, so a lot more recent. But you can see the influence of women's uh, autonomy is spreading. And fun fact, emoja in Swahili means unity. And jinn war comes from the Kurdish word jinn means women and war means space. So it's like women's space. That's awesome. I like this town. I know. I want to go. go. <laughs> Work on that. After we go visit Sappho's Island. Lesbos? Yes. World tour. That'd be pretty epic world tour if we went to Greece and Africa. Those might have to be two separate trips. Aww. Anyway, this is just... The women are able to make their own money, they're able to make their own lives. They do not have to get married if they don't want to, which most of them are turning out not to want to. Really? They don't want to get married in a, like, in a world where you have to give up your autonomy to a man? Yeah, yeah, it's actually causing a lot of problems for the men because they're like, what, what's happening? Where are all the women going? Why are uh, they not here? Imagine when they're in a society where 13-year-old girls are told they have to marry men three times their age. <laughs> they might not want to. Yeah, who would have thought? <laughs> So, slowly, things are changing. One thing is, obviously, FGM is still a huge problem, but you can see attitudes are slowly changing. Uh, there was an interview done by Vice News with uh, a man who lives in one of the adjacent villages, and he's like, listen, my... Uh, my mom is circumcised, my sisters are circumcised, but my daughter will not be. Good for him. Yeah, so slowly, attitudes are getting better, and they're creating a more just society, and that's beautiful. That is beautiful. That was a good one, Ellen. Thank you for not destroying my mood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't. You can't learn about swords every week. Have we learned about swords any week? I mean, I learn about swords every week, but well, I haven't you are been able a sword to... fighter now. I am. <laughs> I'm still waiting for you to get two Dao swords. Zuko style. I mean, that would be cool, but I want like one of those big long swords. I'll wear Space it across. Sword? Yes, space sword. <laughs> Maybe I'll film a video of me using the sword and we'll put it on the gram. Oh, please do. <laughs> I would enjoy that deeply. <laughs> so, Ellen, what did you learn today? I learned all about Eloise. I had no knowledge of her beforehand. And it was very good to learn about some one of the first feminist philosophers and scholars. You know, she 
took a critical view of her society and how it had failed the women around her. And she was able to make her own way and create her own happiness despite that. And also her husband's like relatively standable. Yeah. Like not like top five standable husbands. Like no Shirley Cholesholm's husband. Who like no one's ever gonna top, but <laughs> not bad. And what did you learn today, Sam? I learned about a village in Kenya where women get to just like hang out with other women and not have to answer to no man. And you know what? I love it. <laughs> I want to go and like see their crafts and things. That sounds awesome. I know. It sounds like such a cool place to visit. Yeah. So we'll add that to the list. <laughs> Our travel list is getting long. <laughs> So, if you want to find us on the interwebs, we are at Chaos Podcast on Instagram. We are at underscore Chaos Podcast on Twitter. You can email us at chaospodcast21 at gmail.com. And you can leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. So, we hope you enjoyed the chaos. Yeah. Ooh, and by the time this comes out, we should have stickers. Yes, the stickers are coming. If you send me a screenshot of your five-star iTunes review, I will send you a sticker in return. We accept these screenshots via Instagram direct message or email. Please. You want to say the line again? We hope you enjoyed the chaos. Safe travels.